out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone And the guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell Now entering the talk out of school arena of ideas the undisputed reigning champions, Laney Hameson and Daniel Alisea. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Hello, everyone. My name is Laney Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School, on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. I'm here with Daniel Alisea, my co-host on Talk Out of School. Hi, Lainey. Hello, Tribe of Love, mi gente. It's really a pleasure to do this final show of the year with all of you. Before we continue, I want to remind listeners that if you are interested in downloading this episode online, you can go to the WBAI archives. We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, and The Wire. You can visit The Wire at thewire.educators.nyc. What a great show we have lined up for you today. Geez, tell our listeners what we have in store. Today, on Talk Out of School, Laney and Daniel team up for a two-part series wrapping up the big education news stories of 2023. In this episode's first segment, they will cover some of the events affecting our public schools this year. In the next segment, they interview Diane Ravitch, esteemed educational historian, leading public school advocate and blogger, and president of the Network for Public Education. With that, Daniel and Laney, let's dive in. So one of the good stories, I think, despite all the scare stories about excessive school closures in New York City are NAEP scores, which are the only semi-reliable test scores we have because they don't change in terms of the tests and the scoring from year to year. Our fourth and eighth grade reading scores stayed about the same post-pandemic in 2022. The only significant drop was in fourth grade math. We actually... In terms of those test scores, uh, New York City actually did better than a lot of other districts where uh, the pandemic hit less hard and had fewer school closures. So um, I hope that puts to rest some of the controversy over that issue. And then nationally, you, the U.S. actually gained in position compared with other developed nations on the PISA international tests that are exams for eighth graders. So, again, the U.S. did a little bit better in some regards than the other countries where, again, there were fewer school closures. So there's no doubt that the pandemic hit everybody hard, um, families, students, um, essential work. And there's no way that um, our society or any of these societies could escape the impact of the pandemic. But it's not at all clear that the U.S. did a lot worse in terms of schooling than other nations. Yeah, as an educator, we hear a lot about the idea of learning loss, and there's been a lot of back and forth about whether it's it's a real thing or not. Um, more than anything, it shows you the resilience of the American people, 
It says something about our public schools. It says something about our educators. And it says something about families that despite the adversity, despite the pandemic, um, we were resilient through it. And I think those scores, you know, of course, they're standardized tests. And I have some feelings about that. But more than anything, um, the metrics show something. And they definitely show that we were able to withstand um, all of what uh, the COVID pandemic has brought towards us. Here in New York City, one of the things we, we saw, Mayor Adams has been under the, the radar and, and under the gun as far as um, some of his policies. But one of the things that he has brought forth is um, a focus on dyslexia, um, including a program called NYC Reads. Um, and so... There have been some other concerns about the curriculum being changed as far as ELA, but more than anything, a focus on dyslexia for many, many years, it had been uh, ignored. And I know that the mayor has made this a priority in his administration. I'm a little bit concerned that we've gone a little bit too much in the other direction with this, these mandated curriculums that are basically whole class instruction, one size fits all. Um, the kids who aren't having as, as serious troubles with learning how to read, there is apparently very little or no time for independent reading or reading groups. And it's essentially, you know, whole class instruction that is focused on phonics and excerpts from literature rather than whole books. So I'm a little bit concerned about that as well. Have you noticed that in your, your school? Well, right now, as a middle school, uh, they're kind of rolling it in. And so a lot of the elementary schools have been piloting it and some other districts as well. But there are concerns about it being very scripted as well. And also concerns about um, just some of the professional development that is going on. Um, the union is saying that a lot of their teacher centers are doing good work. However, um, a lot of the consultants coming in seem to be not aware of how we do things here in the city and maybe not aware of some of the needs of our, our students. And so there are concerns about the professional development uh, of, of educators. So there was another law um, decision by a federal judge saying that the city has to expedite services to students with disabilities uh, who had already been ordered to receive these services, but had been facing very long delays and the city apparently agreed with that decision and promised that they would do better. But so far, apparently, there hasn't been that much progress or acceleration of that process. Well, when you add in the budget cuts, there have been some concerns also with D75 being cut as well. And so you've got to wonder whether we're even following this this, um, this mandate, this decision by the judge. I know in the UFT contract, one of the things that was instituted are special education committees. All the schools have special education committees in which they're supposed to consult with administration. Some of those are um, already taking place. However, um, the budget cuts put a lot of things in kind of in limbo. Another good thing that happened as far as I'm concerned is the class size working group report was finally released at the beginning of December. Um, I was part of that uh, group. And it was a long, drawn-out process. We were appointed, I think, um, in May when we started meeting. And 
the report, I think, is pretty good. Again, I helped write it, so I'm biased, but I think it's full of reasonable, actionable measures that would enable schools to lower class sizes to the mandated levels in the law over time. And some of them are actually cost-free or would create cost savings by the DOE. But um, within the group and outside of the group, um, a lot of our proposals are, are facing a lot of a resistance from the administration and outright opposition from the group of parents, the right-wing group of parents um, known as PLACE. In today's chalkbeat, um, they mentioned that this was one of the main issues facing the legislature um, because the city is demanding more funding in return for lowering class size. And the prime sponsor of the law, law John Liu, who's also the chair of the New York City uh, Education Committee in the, in the state Senate, was quoted as saying it's lamentable that city officials continue to hem and haw about moving forward with class size reduction, saying that it was absolutely essential for them to meet the class size mandate. So it's good that John Liu is standing strong and um, fighting, continuing to fight for our kids to receive the smaller classes that they need and deserve. But as I said, they're, they're facing a lot of opposition in the administration and even among this one group of parents who are very vocal and aggressive about trying to get the law repealed or, or, or significantly amended. Yeah, Lainey, I'm trying to remain optimistic about the implementation. I really did like some of the recommendations that were put forth, everything from dealing with some of the legacy of Bloomberg um, with the co-locations and smaller schools. I know that was one of the recommendations, maybe some mergers, consolidating some of the spaces. And I feel like that's something that you would think they would have done almost instinctively, especially with budget cuts. And so I, I'm hoping that there'll be some fiscally sound decisions. Uh, and at the same time, I know that they, they help with um, class size. The, the the big concerns I have is watching the pushback from Adams, from uh, Chancellor Banks, and uh, Weisberg as well. I, I don't understand it, but maybe I do. I know there are other state mandates that sometimes are ignored, uh, whether they be with ELL, uh, whether they be with a library in, in every school. Um, I know this one has some teeth. I'm hoping that it will be made stronger um, in the coming months with the legislature, um, maybe perhaps mayoral control can be leveraged in such a way that, A, we, we get the class size bill implemented and that at the same time, um, some of the, some of the control that, or all of the control that the mayor has can be checked and balanced. Right. Well, the two were passed in conjunction with each other, um, pretty much at the same time in the state legislature. And at some point, um, Senator Liu did say that class size reduction would be a test for this mayor to see if he was accountable. And so far, they have not been accountable. We have other suggestions in the report, such as capping enrollment at really very overcrowded schools and allowing some of the really underutilized schools to have more students, which would also help them have more sustainable budgets and and more more services to their kids. Right now, principals at underutilized schools are basically asked by this administration to go and recruit more students. And if they can't recruit more students, 
it's sort of they're blame they're being blamed for the lack of enrollment at their schools, but it it hurts the under enrolled schools and it hurts the tremendously overcrowded schools um, that there are such disparities between them. And I think one reason the administration is resisting doing anything along those lines is because Dan Weisberg, who's the deputy chancellor, really was groomed under the Bloomberg administration when the theory was we would have this free market competition in schools as though, you know, they were businesses in um franchises or stores in a free market economy and some would thrive and others would fritter away and be closed. Essentially, it would improve the prospects and learning for all students. But what has happened instead is that there have been winners and losers. And there are too many um, small schools which have no their own, haven't been able to attract enough students, whereas there are these other schools that are vastly overcrowded and, um, you know, don't have the space to lower lower class size. Um, kids are eating lunch at 10 a.m. in the morning or 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And there's really no thought of the administration's responsibility to make sure that all kids are being provided with a quality education. And I think that that's, that sort of mentality left over from the Bloomberg administration has really hurt students in New York City and really hurt our schools. Lainey, one of the things we're also seeing, and you've mentioned mayoral control, there have been a a series of hearings. The state has started hearings. Uh, They started in December. Um, One has happened in the Bronx, the other in Queens, and there are another three lined up for January for the other boroughs. And so the state is now listening to parents and advocates and leaders in the communities as to what to do with um, school governance here in New York City public schools. Yeah, and the hearings have been wonderful. I've been pretty much amazed at the consistent consensus among practically every single person who's been testifying that mayoral control doesn't work, that there are no checks and balances, and it's not any more accountable, and in fact it's less accountable than other governance systems. i been part of this process and testified countless times against mayoral control since it was instituted in 2003. And in previous hearings, there's been a mixture of voices, some because the mayor has been, whoever the mayor has been, whether it was Bloomberg or de Blasio, has been more effective at gathering their troops and, and their supporters and the organizations that get city money to speak up on behalf of mayoral control. Bloomberg was especially good at it because he had so much private money as well as public money to dole out. He could really bring out the troops. And this mayor, whether it's because he's distracted or or less or or more unpopular than the other two, hasn't been able to do that. So the number of people speaking out against mayoral control and pointing out the significant flaws in the system has been overwhelming. Uh, the Bronx one, there were only, I think, three people that spoke up for mayoral control. I thought that the, the Queens hearings, um, Adams would be sure to bring out more supporters, but he was unable to do that. So I'm really looking forward to the, the three additional hearings. And I really do believe that it's not just that he's not organized in the same way, but I think there is a stronger consensus after 20 years 
of failure that this is not a system that that helps our schools improve, that helps our kids learn. And the the panel for educational policy, which is our school board, is an embarrassment in many ways. It's been an embarrassment from the beginning. It continues to be an embarrassment with the majority of mayoral appointees voting as a block, as puppets, and and almost always never even justifying their votes in favor of whatever proposal DOE has put forward or whatever inflated contract is being considered. So they just automatically vote aye. And rarely do they ever even try to justify their votes. And it's all the opponents who are the independent members, either appointed by borough presidents or um, selected directly by parent leaders, who have extremely articulate, um, well-thought-out reasons for questioning some of these proposals, whether they be budget cuts again or contracts or whatever. And then they're just met with silence, and then they lose the vote. And so if you ever spend any time watching these meetings, it's really quite depressing. And it's been like that from the beginning. Yeah, they're they're performative more than anything. These these PEP meetings become just rubber stamps, as you said. You know, and, and hearing some of these arguments over the years, the ones that still get to me are that somehow we're going to go back to the 32 um, community uh, school boards. And I feel like that's some type of straw man. Um, I don't think advocates and folks are, are are advocating for that. We are looking to, I know it's a term that's used a lot, but we're looking to reimagine school governance. And uh, I think one of the places, of course, is the PEP, but I'd like to see some some changes on the more local and district level um, when it comes to our schools and school governance as well. The other thing that uh, always gets to me is, you know, in talking about not having to go back to the old system, there one of the boogeyman is um corruption that the old school boards were corrupt and yet we've watched these last three administrations be pretty corrupt as far as or we've seen some contracts um and some other things happen in our schools that outmatch uh some of the corruption we saw uh, decades ago absolutely there under bloomberg and de blasio there were hugely wasteful and even corrupt contracts that went through wasting millions of dollars. But another thing about that um, straw man of the local school boards, they actually had all their power to hire, to fire, and pretty much to spend money as well, taken away from them um, eight years before mayoral control. So Rudy Crew, when he was um, appointed chancellor, decided he needed more authority over the districts and the state legislature actually changed the law at that point and said that um, limited the power of the local school boards to things like curriculum and um, programming, but not hiring and firing the superintendent or not even having control over most, most of the money. So um, that is a straw man in more ways than one. But um the biggest problem with it is what would replace it. And I think the simplest thing in the short run would be to no longer allow the mayor to have a majority of members, because if he and the chancellor can't convince one or two or three other individuals on on the PEP 
this is a good idea, it probably is not a good idea, whatever he's proposing. And the mayor has outsized power over the borough presidents as well. So um, even that he would have more influence than anyone else, unless it was a terrible idea. But eventually, I would really, really like to see a move towards an elected school board. Chicago is moving away from mayoral control next year and phasing in an elected school board. New York City followed Chicago in imposing mayoral control. And so I would love to see um, us follow Chicago in moving towards an elected school board in the future, which 99% of other districts across the country have. You're listening to Talk Out of School with Daniel Alisea on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. We are also being live streamed on WBAI.org. We're so happy to be able to welcome Diane Ravitch to the show once again, esteemed educational historian, leading public school advocate and blogger and president of the Network for Public Education. Diane, thanks so much for making the time to talk to us today. It's a pleasure, Lainey. Great to speak with you and Daniel. Yes, welcome, uh, Diane, once again to talk out of school. So 2023 is, is about to be behind us, but it's been an eventful one. What do you think were some of the major news stories of um, this school year um, education-wise? Well, you know, I'd say that public education has been in large part on the defensive because there is a very aggressive voucher movement. And they've always existed, but they've never been as forthright as they have been this past year and pushing through voucher legislation, not just voucher legislation, but universal vouchers where every child in the state, every student in the state is entitled to a state subsidy. Um, and now, uh, say somewhere close to half the states, all of them red states, have voucher programs. Um, and they vary in terms of how expansive they are. But this has been a big year for pushing through vouchers. And since there's a Supreme Court uh, that it has made a number of very pro, uh, pro-religion pro decisions, uh, I don't expect that the Supreme Court will knock down any of these voucher programs. So that has been, I would say, the, the big story of the year. But there are other stories that are also important, uh, like the uh, growth and also the, uh, I, I don't know what the right word is, but the growth and also the embarrassment of Moms for Liberty, a right-wing group that has led the, the book banning movement. And, of course, the book banning movement itself is worthy of conversation because uh, that's been very unsettling to a lot of teachers, librarians, parents, and students. Before we get to book banning, which is a really important topic, I just want you to sort of explain to our listeners the different forms that these voucher programs can take, uh, how they get around um, in many states the the prohibition against uh, teaching religion, and why there's such a serious threat to the survival of public schools, if you think that's true. Well, I do believe that vouchers uh, represent a very serious threat. There, the states that have vouchers also have charters, and and these are those are privately managed schools that are called public schools, but they're not really public because 
they uh, they don't have to accept everyone who walks through the door as a, a true public school does. So in essence, you have uh, many states that are running three different school systems, the public school system, the charter system, and the voucher system. And uh, there is virtually no accountability for the voucher system. Public money goes out the door, and uh, no one knows how it's spent. Uh, it, it can be spent on all sorts of frivolous items in some states, uh, but there's very little oversight. And typically the kids who get vouchers uh do not have to take the state tests. Uh, typically, the charter school students do take state tests. Uh, but again, this is money that goes to private corporations. Uh, some of them are for profit. Some of them are not for profit. Uh, some of them have uh, huge salaries for their uh, super or their their principals, the charter schools that is. And having three separate systems inevitably takes money away from the public schools, and the public schools end up being. Uh, the schools of last resort, where the private schools and the charter schools are uh, selling their wares and choosing their students. And a lot of the voucher schools are heavily religious and can exclude kids and discriminate against them on religious grounds. But how do how do they get around this prohibition um, of church and state mingling in the in the school well, legally? Most- in, in the states that allow funding uh, to go to any private school, uh, the religious schools are the the majority of, of schools that are getting funding. Uh, and the way they get around it is that they simply ignore the state constitution. Uh, almost every state constitution says, either in an amendment or in the original part of the constitution as it was written, uh, that no public money shall be uh, sent to religious schools. Uh, no sectarian uses. Uh, when, when it's gone to court and reached the, high, the state high court, the state high court says uh, in, in red states where the uh, Republicans dominate the state courts, they have said, well, the money is actually going to the parents and the parents then get to decide where they want to spend the money. So it's not really giving money to a religious school, even though the parent then turns around and uses that money to pay tuition uh, and for services at a religious school. And that's how they get around it. They simply ignore the prohibition. And the prohibitions are very plain and clear. And, you know, a lot of these judges will claim that they're originalists, uh, but they simply ignore the original intent, which, which was that the state has a responsibility to establish a public school system, a common school system that's open to all, uh, and that should be adequately funded. Uh, and, that the language also usually includes very strong uh, words about the prohibition uh, in sending money to religious schools. So they simply ignore it. There was a uh, referendum in Florida in 2012 uh, in which Jeb Bush tried to get the language uh, that had that religious prohibition stricken from the Constitution. And it was turned down. It was funny because his amendment to remove uh, the prohibition on public money going to religious schools, his amendment was called the Religious Freedom Amendment. So you had, in order to vote against, uh, in order to vote against vouchers, you had to vote against religious freedom. You know, it's, it was meant to confuse people and it did, but it, the 55% voted against vouchers. I suspect that if it had been straightforward and said this is a vote for or against allowing 
uh, public money to go to religious and, and other private schools, it would have been more like a 65 to 70% no vote because that's what it has been in, in other states. The interesting thing about vouchers is they're very unpopular. And so it's a curiosity that nearly half the states have adopted them uh, when, uh, in fact, every time there's a referendum, they go down by very large numbers. Uh, Michigan had a, a referendum years ago when the DeVosses, Betsy DeVos and her husband were pushing vouchers, and it went down by, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 70%. In Utah, a deep red state, it went down, again, 70%. Utah has vouchers now. Uh, in Arizona, the most recent voucher referendum, uh, it went down by a two-thirds majority, and they already had a voucher program in Arizona, but it was limited. And it was limited. I think they started. They usually start off with saying, "Oh, these are vouchers will save poor kids from failing public schools." So we'll limit it only to poor kids. And then they say, "But we'll also add the, the uh, eligibility for kids with special needs." Then we'll add eligibility for kids living on Indian reservations in Arizona. Then we'll add uh, military families. That, and it keeps growing and growing. And the ultimate push in Arizona was for universal vouchers, which is now the big thing among Republicans. Everyone should get a voucher regardless of need. Uh, in Arizona, that went to the voters about whether vouchers should be expanded. It was defeated by a vote of uh, something like 65-35. And the legislature simply ignored the vote. So, you know, it makes you feel discouraged when the referendum meant nothing at all. There seems to be some rays of hope in Texas now. You see the Texas legislature, along with, I think, 21 Republicans, um, go against Abbott's wishes for vouchers. I know he's um, waged, he's waging a war against them. I think he's holding public funding and uh, teacher pay. Right, right. Well, uh, Texas has been a, a wonderful story this year, as it has been for the last few years. And that is that the uh, it was the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, who was a voucher advocate to begin with. And Abbott was kind of, you know, he had other things he cared about. He didn't care that much about vouchers. But this year, both Abbott and Patrick decided this was the year they were going to get vouchers. It has been turned down. Repeatedly, This is not the first time it has been turned down repeatedly because of a group of Republicans in the uh, lower house of the legislature. And they, they live in rural districts. There is no choice in their districts. There, there are no religious schools. There are no private schools. And they know that they're. Uh, if, if private schools were to open, if, if the churches open schools, their public schools would go under. And they, the public schools are often the biggest employer in their town. And they know the teachers. They, uh, you know, when there are all these claims that teachers are, are bad, teachers are grooming kids, teachers are in, teaching critical race theory or some other nonsense that they come up with. They know this is not true. They know their teachers. It's very often their, uh, cousins, nieces, uh, wives. And so the r rural Republicans have held firm and Governor Abbott this year decided, well, he was going to get vouchers through no matter what. He didn't want to be the big red state without vouchers. And so he tried in the regular session and failed. And then he called, he said, I'm going to call special sessions until I get this passed. He called four special sessions and he uh, was defeated one after another, after another, after another. And as you said, Daniel, he tied any boost in spending for public schools to vouchers. And he said, if you vote for vouchers, 
you'll also get an increase for public schools. If you don't vote for vouchers, you'll get no increase. So there was no increase for teacher pay, no increase for school funding. And uh, a lot of people there are pretty mad at him. But uh, the other threat that he had was he told the, the, the 20 or 21 Republicans who didn't support vouchers that he was going to primary them. Um, and they just laughed at him because they know their district, they know their uh, constituents, and they felt very comfortable voting against vouchers. And in, the, in some of these small rural communities, public schools are really the center of the communities in terms of uh, social life as well, sports and right. uh, teams and all the rest. And so they really rely on their public schools, both economically and as the center of all social life. So they, right. they realize how important they are. Right. Well, they, they, they refer to, they use the term Friday night lights. That's when they have the high school football games. And they're not about to give up their Friday night lights so that somebody uh, can get public money to go to a, re- a religious school that doesn't even exist. But I have to say that Texas is a very uh, special case because there is such a well-organized group of people there, uh, parents and organizations. The one that I'm most familiar with is uh, the Pastors for Texas Children. And it's it's a wonderful organization. They have about 2,000 pastors from across the state. Uh, different uh, varieties of religion, but they're all uh, strong supporters of public schools and they understand the importance of the public school in the community. And they also understand that 90% or more of the kids in the state are in public schools. So if you are start uh, cut, cutting away the funding from those schools, you're cutting away from the 90% so that maybe two or three or 4% of them can go to a private school. And the other thing is that with the universal program, as Greg Abbott wanted, I think that what the rural Republicans understand in Texas is that if this universal program is adopted, it won't be just money going to kids escaping public schools. It will be overwhelmingly used to fund kids who are already in private schools. They won't be in their community because their communities don't really have private schools, but it will be in the big cities and the suburbs. And this has been the most important thing we've learned about vouchers since they have become widespread. The overwhelming majority of vouchers do not go to kids fleeing public schools. They go to kids who never attended a public school. Uh, they go to kids who are already in private school, already in religious school, and kids who are just starting kindergarten. So let's let's um, now um, move on to another subject, which is, I think, been uh, a topic, a, a major topic in education, which are the book bannings that have proliferated throughout the states uh, this past year. You wrote a book called The Language Police in 2003. How does the current book banning craze differ from what you were addressing in that work? Uh, what I wrote about in the language police was about the quiet um, censorship of language. And I, I gathered from all the publishing houses that I contacted, all the big ones, and uh, they all had very similar guidelines saying, don't ever use uh, words that will offend this group, that group. So any word that had uh, boy or girl or male or female connotation was to be eliminated. Uh, any uh, photograph or, or uh, any anything that referred to old people as elderly 
uh, or that portrayed them as seeming or as being disabled or uh, using a walker, that had to be eliminated because that was considered a stereotype. I mean, it, it got to very ridiculous uh, extremes. But what I found was that uh, it started with the test because I was on the National Testing Board at that time. And when we were, uh, it was during the uh, first early years of No Child Left Behind and the Bush administration. And the Bush administration wanted to promote a national test. And so the publishers gave us their guidelines and the guidelines said you can't use a word that refers to Halloween. You can't use a re- word that refers to witches because witches and Halloween and things of this sort will re- make people think of evolution. Don't I don't know, understand the connection myself, but this is in fact what they were saying. Uh, you can't refer to anything uh, about death or, or suicide or war. It would be upsetting to children if they're taking a test to learn uh, to come across a question that referred to a topic like this. So I I started accumulating all of these banned topics, and it it seemed as though only the blandest sort of literature passages could be used. And sometimes they they would take literature passages and rewrite them to drop words that were offensive to anybody. So the more I looked into this, the more I started going back and looking at it historically and finding that we had a fairly long tradition of bodlerizing textbooks and the the books that children read even Shakespeare had been uh screened in this way because there's a lot of sexy scenes in Shakespearean plays so th- those plays had been in parts uh subject to deletions to take out anything that referred to sex uh one of the big differences today is that it's not just trimming of language although I'm sure that's still going on, uh, but literally book banning. And we did not see a lot of it in the past, maybe because there are many more books today written for uh, young adults in particular. Uh, those uh, those books frequently deal with themes that adults, some adults, find troublesome. Uh, let's say race and racial relationships, racial violence, uh, but most especially anything to do with LGBT subjects and the the majority of books that have been banned or removed from school libraries or even public libraries are books about uh, gay and lesbian and transgender themes and this goes hand in hand with the what seems to be a war on transgender students uh, transgender adults drag queens so that any kind of uh, recognition that people exist who are gay or, or or transgender is somehow not to be acknowledged in school. And I just posted on my blog uh, just recently a list of 673 books that were banned by the Orange County, Florida schools. Florida is the epicenter, Florida and Texas, I should say, are the epicenter of book banning uh, because there are very, very conservative people in power, not just at the governor's level, DeSantis in Florida and Abbott in Texas, but the legislatures have super majorities of uh, very right-wing Republicans. And so they, they support this book banning. Uh, and uh, it's been horrendous. The, the librarians are left to uh, go through every book in the library and, and make sure that there's no offensive language. And so the list that was published by the Orange County Schools in Florida had crazy things on it, like Paradise Lost by Milton. I mean, I don't, can't even imagine. Maybe it'll, 
encourage kids to read Paradise Lost by John Milton, uh, which would be a nice outcome. But there, there were other classics uh, by John Steinbeck and, and other well-known authors where no one ever thought that these were books that should be banned. But when you get that um, the threat that the librarians could lose their jobs, they could be fined large amounts of money if they didn't screen my, uh, the, the books, every book that has anything questionable gets removed. Now, that was not the case when, when I wrote The Language Police 20 years ago. Uh, that was more about sanitizing uh, the test and sanitizing the textbooks to remove offensive topics and, and what were considered offensive words. Uh, but there was no large-scale attempt to cleanse the libraries uh, as we are seeing today. So one of the things about the Florida law, and I'm not sure if it's true in other states like Texas, is that all you need is one person to complain about books and have a long, long list of books to complain about, to have them removed from school libraries. And it turns out that you can have one person complaining in in many, many different districts, and that one person can have their wishes um, followed rather than, you know, the, the majority of parents who probably don't want those books removed from the school library, which is a very, very strange aspect of a law. I've never heard of a law before, which gives so much power to any one individual to block the rights of others in that way. Do you think? Yes, I think you're, you're right. And I'm not sure if the Texas law uh, allows one individual probably does because these right-wing governors try to compete with one another to see who can be more extreme uh there was a legislator in texas that somehow came up with a list of 800 books that he found offensive and so uh the all the school libraries across the state began scanning their shelves to make sure that those books were not there and they had to be reviewed. Now, they also have as part of the law in Texas that any bookstore that sells to the schools has to check anything they've ever sold to a school to make sure that there's no offensive content uh, having to do with gender or, or gay issues or racial issues. So all of the small bookstores, that, of, of which there were some 300 in the state of Texas, were terrified that they were going to have to go out of business because how could they possibly handle this bureaucratic nightmare of taking responsibility for any book they've ever sold to the local school district? Uh, and it would just leave, uh, you know, the, the, the major uh, I don't know if they have Walden Books or Barnes Noble or, or who is selling to the schools, but the, all the small bookstores would be out of that business completely. And for many of them, that would put that, that, that's a 20% of their book sales and they couldn't afford to do that. So this is really uh, a draconian uh, approach to book banning, which is, it, it goes to the issue of parental rights, which is a ridiculous, crazy, convoluted issue because only some parents have parental rights. So the one parent in Florida has parental rights to take a book out of the hands of every other uh, parent's child. So the uh, nobody else has parental rights but that one parent. And you could say the same about a lot of these practices that uh, when they, in, in um, Florida, when they ban any discussion of, of uh, whether it's gender or, or sexuality or race, that Gay, gay parents have no rights and black parents have no rights. Only white conservative parents have rights. So it, it's crazy. And the book banning, I think, accentuates that issue by saying that one person uh, who is offended by a book she has probably never read 
that somebody told her about uh, it can take away the parental rights of every other parent in the state. It also sort of reminds me about the abortion bans because it, it's particularly vicious because the abortion bans target doctors as being potential criminals, and now they're doing the same to librarians. So they're really sort of viciously attacking professionals and professional judgment in a way to further privilege the people who oppose that practice. Yes, this is true, and it's it's also alarming because the the, the punishment for doctors and and terms of abortions is one that would take away their license, fine them $100,000, send them to jail for a year or five years or 10 years, so that uh, every doctor in in the state of Texas and some of these other states as well uh, that have banned abortion is afraid to to take even the most extreme cases and take the risk of without a court order. And of course, they can't get a court order, as we recently saw in Texas. But I think with the book banning, it goes to uh, the rights of of parents and of students to be able to read. Uh, mm-hmm. And when they say you can't read this classic, which has been used in the schools for the last 40 years, uh, because you know Mrs. Jones thinks it's it's a bad book. I mean, you can't read something by Toni Morrison. You can't read something by James Baldwin. You can't read something that might have gay characters in it. That's that's giving power to a few parents to take away the rights of every parent. You're listening to Talk Out of School with Daniel Alisea on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. We are also being live streamed on WBAI.org. So, Diane, one of the, the main parental groups that seems to be leading the attack on public schools, um, especially the book bans, and have been opposing the teaching of race and gender in schools is called Moms for Liberty. Can you explain their links to the GOP, the Republican Party, and why do they seem to be in trouble now? Well, Moms for Liberty was started, I think, in 21, and it had started off with a lot of money. And I think it's important to understand that in all of these culture war issues, uh, there's a lot of money, and the money is coming from right-wing individuals, very wealthy individuals, and also wealthy organizations uh, that see the culture wars as a great way to uh, win votes for for their side. And their side is, uh, unfortunately, the Republican Party. I, I haven't seen any Democratic groups uh, joining forces to ban books about uh, race or gender or sexuality. Um the Moms for Liberty was started by three Republican women in Florida, and they were on school boards uh, and engaged in school issues, very involved in culture war issues. They they were concerned about any, the, the, the culture war issues we've discussed, especially uh, anything to do with gay, uh, reading about gay things, and they were very close to uh, DeSantis, Governor DeSantis. So they started Moms for Liberty and within a year, I think they were already uh, being invited to speak at major Republican events and conservative events. And they had a very large war chest. They have now scores of chapters across the country. And these are, uh, in every community where they exist, uh, they are similarly minded very conservative women who would like to see more book bans and to see 
they well they they believe that the schools are teaching all the wrong things. They want to be able to know what uh, you know to screen what's being taught. And I, the teachers I've spoken to have said anyone who wants to see what I'm teaching can come in and look at the curriculum. This is not a secret. It's not like we're teaching something that hasn't been carefully scrutinized. Um, but Moms for Liberty spread very quickly. It had the imprimatur of a lot of high-powered Republican officials behind it, like DeSantis. Uh, President Trump, our former President Trump, embraced Moms for Liberty, and he, they spoke at one of his events or he spoke at one of their events. So it's very much identified with the Republican Party. And they recently have had two rather major setbacks. One was that they feel that a lot of, of um, school board candidates in the November elections and somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 percent of them lost their races. So that was very encouraging because that meant that people began to see what was happening in their community. They didn't want the book bans. They didn't want the censorship. Uh, they didn't want the uh, these moms for liberty to be controlling what was in their classrooms. And people came out to vote and they voted them out and they voted for uh, parents who were wanted to see a, um, a more open-minded approach to education where there was at least some critical thinking going on and reflection and not just uh, the whatever had been whittled down by the Moms for Liberty. So they lost a lot of school board races. The other thing that happened was a huge sex scandal involving one of the three co-founders of Moms for Liberty. Uh, this is a, a woman who is in Florida, Bridget Ziegler. She is very close to Governor DeSantis. She was elected to the Sarasota, Florida School Board. Uh, Governor DeSantis appointed her to the board to oversee the, the uh, Disney, Walt Disney uh, place that's down there, Disney World. Uh, and her husband, Chris uh, Christian Ziegler, is the chairman of the Florida Republican Party. And it emerged about a month ago uh, that Christian Ziegler was accused of raping a woman uh, he, a number of conversations were taped by the police between Christian Ziegler and this woman. Uh, he said it was consensual. She said it was not consensual. And during the conversation, she said, I thought you were going to bring Bridget with you. She came last time. Why didn't she come this time? And he said, well, she'll be here next time. So it emerged that they had had a threesome. And here was a woman who was putting herself forward as a paragon of moral virtue and uh, basically demeaning anything that had to do with gay sex. And she had participated in gay sex. So. Uh, that, I think, uh, took a lot of steam out of Moms for Liberty and, and really blemished their reputation. Uh, and when I went to the webpage for Moms for Liberty, they didn't even acknowledge that Bridget Ziegler uh, was one of their original co-founders. Uh, she, the board, the Sarasota School Board asked her to resign. Uh, she refused to do so. So she's still a board member there. But I recall that uh, at the recent meeting of the Network for Public Education, we had a board member from Sarasota who is a gay man and very reputable guy in the community, an elected school board member who said that he had been subject to tremendous uh, persecution, particularly by Bridget Ziegler. And he's still on the school board. She's still on the school board. And it's a fine mess. Uh, but he's not a hypocrite. And she is. Well, what's interesting about the, this political um, movement, whether you're talking about vouchers or book bans or abortion, 
is that the minority viewpoint is getting its way over the majority in some strange permutation of what democracy should look like. And, um, you know, over and over uh, in um, surveys or whatever, or referendum, as you pointed out with vouchers, but also book bans and abortion, these are these are opinions of a very relative few people who seem to be predominating in our our culture now and in our our legal system and it's it's quite disturbing it to see it uh, affect our public schools in this way as well well i i think it's important to bear in mind that the culture war battles i uh, have as their purpose to be a distraction from the fact that republicans actually have nothing else to offer uh so they like to get people in uh, angry about race and gender and sexuality and other such things because they would rather not talk about Social Security and what will happen to it in the future. They would rather not talk about our health care system and it's the problems with it. They would rather not talk about the environmental crisis. They, they deny, they continue to deny that climate change exists, but they know that's not a popular stance. So they would rather talk about our critical race theory, which is non-existent except in higher education. Uh, and it's more, it's, it's better for them if they can keep people outraged about uh, these phony issues. Uh, like there's, there's a book that kids shouldn't read that works better for them and Monster for Liberty works better for them than actually talking about their economic pro- uh, policies, uh, which are disadvantageous to the great majority of people. Well, I want to thank you so much, Diane, for being with us today on Talk Out of School, and thank you for your work in defense of public schools. And let's hope for a better 2024 and that a lot of these movements lose at the polls and um, our schools can can be well-funded and focus on the things that really matter. Well, that is ultimately what matters most for schools is that they receive the public support they need. And so many of these culture war issues are meant to discredit the schools and to allow legislatures not to fund them. So uh, I think we have to focus on what matters most, which is to make sure that our schools are well-funded, have small class sizes, and have the tools they need to take care of the kids they have. Thanks again for being here. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Diane. That's all we have time for today, Tribe of Love. Lainey and I want to wish you and your loved ones a happy new year. We need you to make a donation today to WBAI in the name of Talk Out of School. You can do so by calling 212-209-2950. Again, that number is 212-209-2950. Or you can become a WBAI buddy at WBAI.org. That web address once more is WBAI.org. You already know, Trap of Love. Please be safe. Please be kind. Have a happy new year. And always remember that love always wins. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. 